Welcome to another segment of the Grassy Knoll on this December 11th, 2006. We have with us today, back with us today, uh, Ralph Sashmore. He was on with the very first show we did with regard to these shootings that took place, uh, obviously in Columbine, to which he speaks, uh, to the uh, Dunblane Massacre, uh, about which uh, Sandra Utley wrote, also uh, Port Arthur Massacre from both Andrew McGregor and Carl Wernerhoff. Uh, and Ralph is back today. Uh, because you know, he opened it up. I wanted him, if he would, to uh, basically bring it to a close for a while, and he's agreed to do that. So uh, we want to welcome you back, uh, Ralph. Thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you, Keith. Glad to be back. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, you, you were off first. Uh, I think you heard the interviews with regard to the other uh, two uh, venues. And um, has this has this any effect on you? Has it raised any more questions? Has it answered any questions? Uh, uh, how has this all come down uh, for you? Well, I'm glad to have uh, heard uh, from Bill Zabel, especially. I thought I was one of the only ones doing Columbine. I'd heard of his name early on, many years ago, but I thought he had become inactive. Mm-hmm. And when I heard his interview, I was uh, quite surprised, and I emailed him. And hopefully we're starting a collaboration now to uh, work together on this. Excellent, excellent. Uh, also, does it change, or did it ever change your mind? Maybe you felt that way from the beginning. Uh, when you heard about the uh, Port Arthur situation in Australia, you, you, you know about uh, the uh, the Dunblane situation in Scotland. Uh, has it done anything to uh, strengthen your convictions or give you the conviction that this might be something of a, um, well, let's call it what it is, possibly a, a government op? Well, I had heard of, of uh, Port Arthur, and I had done my, a little bit of my own research for that, enough to know that it was uh, most likely a covert operation. This guy, Martin Bryant, once again, was not capable of, of committing the acts that he was accused of. So I knew a little bit about Port Arthur. I was so surprised about Don Blaine, though. Uh, I thought that was really a lone gunman. And it was only after talking to Sandra Utley and looking at some of the strange things going on there that it's possible there may have been more stuff going on there, too. Yeah, and um, I know that you're probably in, uh, I guess, correspondence with her via email. That's correct. Uh, she has just come out. I don't know if... Uh, you saw this or not, uh, that she's come out with a uh, a letter to the editor? Uh, I believe she emailed me that a couple of days ago. Refresh me on what she said, if you can't remember. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let me take a look See uh, here. I think I, I, I guess the key paragraph, if I could, uh, is um, she writes uh, in the second graph under an editorial she uh, titled The Big Con. She said, if you cannot accept that Dunblane was a massive psychological operation of terror inflicted on the Western world, and that the goal was twofold. One, terrorization of the population, in parentheses, to keep us in our place. And two, gun control, parentheses, to keep us in our place. Uh, with the added bonus for some that Thomas Hamilton's life was eliminated, along with the other, uh, all the dirt he had on his fellow pedophiles, and what remained was quickly removed from Hamilton's house within an hour of the massacre happening. Um, I mean, there's more to it than that, but uh, as, as she kind of reconstructed the situation, uh, it dawned on her that, in fact, this might have also the trademark of an operation uh, that was meant to do more than just, uh, and I hate to say it, I mean, that, that the children become targeted for such a thing. Uh, it makes it all the more heinous, and I don't know, uh, you know, Ralph, if it's one of these things where when you deal with children, it's so horrible that a lot of people, even uh, the victims, uh, parents and siblings and such, just want to see this go away. Hence, they, I guess, um, unwittingly uh, aid those who would like 
the whole matter to go away for certain reasons, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, that's always been kind of troubling to me, too, how uh, uh, quickly the parents want to bury the homeless. Uh, of course, I can't put my place, you know, right. myself in their place. The, the trauma must be tremendous and the grief and so forth. But uh, it is a fact that most of them don't want to uh, reface that issue. Yeah, I... I uh, you know, you, you, you're right. Uh, none of us know. Uh, we might all do the same thing, in fact, and for what would be see very good reasons. Mm-hmm. However, it still serves the purposes of those who might have wanted to do something cloaked in this uh, horrendous event. Now, looking back at Columbine in particular, uh, you say uh, you, you wanted to go back, if we could, to discuss whether or not uh, they might have known, there might have been signs uh, that this... Um, event was about to happen or something was about to happen and by they I mean uh, perhaps the police uh, the school administrators teachers etc so you want to pick it up there sure uh, yeah uh, there was a couple of indications that the the TCM were, were dropping hints about what they were planning on doing TCM meaning trench coat mafia trench coat mafia right fine okay uh, way back in January before April they, someone had left a bunch of uh, signs all over the school saying 420 or I'm sorry uh, April 19th and then a question mark Yeah. 
worship Hitler. Uh, that apparently was just another coincidence that morning. Yeah, that would seem like an utterly bad taste. I'm surprised. Well, you know, who knows? Because it was such a short amount of time, perhaps from that moment onward, uh, that the administration wouldn't have obviously uh, done something to, to uh, seek a little retribution on the people who did that, the students. Yeah, you would think so. Um, one other thing, uh, Bill brought this up. I don't know if you had heard anything before or after. Um, anything about the surveillance videos of the of the uh, high school on April 19th, more or less, uh, being done away with or, or taped over? Uh, I don't know about that. He said on the 19th, yeah, he said that was uh, mm -hmm. taped over. I don't know that much about the, the cafeteria video. It's certainly possible. Uh, they also indicated that there was videos in the library and from the administration offices. That much we know, and, and those videos also just plain disappeared. Um, I want to tell folks also, this is Ralph Sachmar. Uh, he uh, was our first interview with regard to any of the massacres, uh, and, of course, uh, this one being uh, Columbine. Uh, you can hit his website by going to visigoth.com and just clicking on the link there that's underneath uh, his name and uh, an upcoming shows and also we're, uh, in our archived audio, which, of course, will happen uh, about half an hour after the show is over. And then you can take a look through the message boards and such. Um, uh, I'm just wondering, too, and that's what maybe you mentioned about the message boards, uh, was there anything that anybody came across, uh, came up with, even before you were on the last time, that indicated uh, some trouble or something uh, untoward might have been going on on the 19th? Uh, as far as uh, students being aware of that? Anybody, sure, anybody. Uh, specifically, no, not on the 19th. I remember there was some, uh, uh, somebody, a uh, student had said they found a, a bomb in a trash can on the 19th. Mm -hmm. Or somebody had made some kind of comment to that effect. Okay. And, and that was one of the things. Uh, I know some bomb threats were allegedly phoned in on the morning of the 20th. And is this before uh, any of the events unfolded? Any, yeah, that's correct. Uh, All right. Right, right. And uh, initially, I believe uh, there was some indication that the, the, it was planned for the 19th of uh, April, not the 20th. And uh, why that was changed is not really known. I heard one story that said that everything was set to go on the 19th, but Harrison Klebold did not show up. I don't know if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. Another indication was that, that it was on the 19th, but whoever was overseeing it had pushed it back to the 20th due to it was, you know, being Hitler's birthday. And that, that, again, it's just rumor. Right, well, you know, the 19th has uh, obviously some, uh, uh, I guess, uh, symbolism also because the 19th is Patriot's Day, and that's the day which the uh, Murrow's uh, building was bombed in o Oklahoma City. Right, Oklahoma City. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, with regard to the arsenal they supposedly had or didn't have, uh, were there any more guns than the ones that uh, were found, I guess, close to their person or otherwise? Uh, well, there was talk of a, of a Glock being found. Uh, one of the, uh, the trench girls would ask about a Glock. There was repeated reference to, to a Glock in the, 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 uh, the uh, released interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the policemen who went to Harris' home that morning Department. They arrived at the Harris apartment sometime that morning. The guy who went in the house first said there was another shotgun in his bedroom, hanging from the sling uh, from the wall. Mm. So <laughs> mm. that later became a, a BB gun, but uh, the first officer in said it was definitely a shotgun. <laughs> and whatever happened to that shotgun, where it came from, that, that was the end of that story. Well, yeah, it's so hard now. Uh, 
uh, to divine what was the truth from what has been uh, used for the truth. Yeah. But, good. I just want to say there was another individual that arrived on scene at around noon or slightly past, and this was a, a 27-year-old. He came to the scene with a, a knife strapped to his leg. He was intercepted rather quickly. He was carrying a 22 action rifle. The police also tried to indicate that that was a BB gun, but it was definitely a 22. The interesting thing there is, is why would they try to make it a BB gun when he was actually carrying a rifle to the school? Well, what about these weapons also, uh, and, and, and the ones that uh, have always been, um, you know, attached to, to the two uh, uh, Harris and Klebold? Has it, now again, this is another thing that can get muddied in time. But was there any kind of uh, extensive uh, uh, search as to where these uh, weapons came from? They did a good extensive search on two of the weapons. The, the Tech-9 uh, machine pistol was traced back to a, an associate of the Trench Coat Mafia, and from there to the Tanner Gun Show. Uh, the the double-barreled shotgun was also, uh, they found where, uh, where they got that double-barreled shotgun. It was off from the gun show. But the other two weapons, the high-point rifle and the pump-action shotgun, they never found out or they never investigated where they got those guns. They just said that they picked them up at the, the Tanner gun show, but they didn't indicate from who, um, interestingly. Is there any evidence or anything that leads to uh, these guns perhaps uh, passing through the hands of uh, police? Well, there were some early indications, some very early reports. The uh, reporters went to a gun shop not too far from uh, Littleton. This was a place called Bay's Guns, and there was a lot of reporters descended on that shop, and uh, apparently information was let loose that a couple of the guns came from this gun shop. It's interesting, this guy had a very close association with the police. His gun shop was called, I think, believe, Dave's Guns and Police Supply. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he sold to the police. He was the biggest gun supplier to the police. He bought police weapons, surplus weapons. He also hired uh, off-duty officers to work at his shop. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking maybe these guys went to that gun show also, and they sold their label weapons from this, this gun shop that was associated with the police. Uh, what are the... Uh gun laws uh, in Colorado for purchase. Is there a certain age uh, minimum? Well, you had to be 18 to buy a gun at that time. And they were? Well, Klebold had just turned 18. Harris was still 17, which is why they had to use one of their girlfriends to buy one of the guns, the double-barreled shotgun. She did a straw purchase of the gun. You know, you made mention before about the the location of of, of one alleged shotgun in, uh, I think it was Klebold's apartment. And it was Harris's room. Harris's room in his house. It was Harris's room. Yes, they went to Harris's the Harris residence. Okay, that's where they found the shotgun uh, hanging from the wall. Okay, all right. But you used the word apartment, didn't you, or did you mean just? Uh, I, mean, I meant his room in his house. Okay, he was living with his parents at the time. Right. No, there, I, I just didn't know if in a place as small as one's as I would prefer to an apartment. You know, how the heck do you hide that from your folks? I mean, it's. <laughs> Yeah, that was another question. I mean, it was hanging right from the wall. How do you hide this from your folks? Unless, unless well, that... maybe the parents never came into the room or somebody put it there to implicate him. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that could be done after the fact for an intended purpose. Mm-hmm. All right. And then that's the other thing. And there were stories about them, suppose, or I guess Harris in the garage having made bombs and such like that. I remember thinking, gee, so much for a parental supervision or, uh, you know watching what a, a son's doing. Yeah, that was another thing. They, they found bombs and bomb components in, at both boys' houses. 
which is unusual. You would think if they made all those bombs that they would actually take them to the school. Why would they leave some at home and clearly implicating themselves? Well, two things, and I want to uh, get back to especially um, perhaps the, uh, the planning of the bombs. Uh, but is there an individual, uh, I believe uh, you made me aware of, it, uh, how do you pronounce the last name, uh, M-A-N-E-S? Mark Manitz. What's the Mark story Manitz. with... Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, about 24 years old. He was one of two people arrested for supplying the Tech-9 to Klebold. Mm-hmm. Klebold was that time was 17, and, and Mark Manitz was not a gun dealer. He just sold the weapon to him illegally. Okay. So he was arrested and tried, and he did serve two years in prison, from what I understand. All right, he had a rather close relationship to Harris. not really hanging out with the same crowd. He did some favors for Harris. He bought ammunition for him the night before. He took him out to the Rampart Range three times and filmed them shooting the weapons, which I thought was, was mighty convenient for the police case. I remember that video turned up afterwards, and it was very incriminating because it showed them firing their weapons. All right, this is the one they made the big hubbub about? Right, right. And uh, how much time did you say he did? Uh, I think he was sentenced to eight years. He ended up serving only two, however. Uh, would you know if that was in a, a federal uh, or a state? I think that was a state prison. All right, what I'm thinking about this is, since he had, as I think you would agree, enough complicity to put him into um, um, you know, some kind of um, involvement with the murders, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm surprised he wasn't. he wasn't tried on any of those counts. Well, he was only, the only thing they got him on was... Uh, uh, selling the weapon to, to Cleveland, there was never any hint that he knew it was going to happen. Although, as I said, it's just odd that he, he did so many things for Harrison Cleveland and he was always, uh, you know, very, uh, what's the word, uh, convenient for them, mm. the ammunition, filming them with the guns, taking them out to the rampart range, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm just surprised he didn't get hit with a, with a, a charge of, you know, conspiracy to commit murder. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, all right, and does, does anybody know whatever happened to him? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. After he was released from prison, I don't know if he's in the area still or not. I imagine he's keeping a pretty low profile. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> All right, uh, going on to um, what you would call strange goings-on in the uh, high school kitchen. Mm-hmm. What about that? Well, uh, during the, the rescue, right in the middle of the siege, uh, the students, a lot of the students in the cafeteria, they went into the back rooms, the back of the kitchen, uh, in search of shelter. There were several rooms, uh, storage rooms, offices, janitorial closets, and a lot of the students hid in those rooms, and they, they locked the doors behind them. Well, at some point, about an hour later, uh, one of the students went from door to door in that kitchen area, and he tried to get people to open the doors for him, and none of them would. And uh, there was some uh, question whether he was really one of the, the shooters or whether he was acting at the behest of one of the shooters. But eventually, no, nobody opened the door for this guy. It's rather suspicious of why he went door to door trying to get people to, to come out. Hmm. So, well, one of my theories was that the, uh, by that time, the police had entered the school, they had grabbed this kid, and they were trying to find out where the gunmen were, so they had this kid go from door to door trying to find out if anybody was uh, in there, <laughs> so, shall we say. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Why would this, he was just a student himself there. He was not associated with the trench coat mafia. And uh, if it was right in the middle of the shooting, why would he have the time to go from room to room, passing his ID card under the doors, trying to 
trying to get people to open the door. It doesn't make sense. He could, if he wanted to rescue people, he would just quickly say, you know, the coast is clear, let's go. Yeah. If people didn't want to follow him, he would just leave himself. But here he spends all his time down there in this kitchen, going from door to door, trying to get people to come out, convincing them. At the same time, the shooters are roaming around in the cafeteria there. Yeah, I mean, so what exactly happened there, I don't know. I mean, the only way that makes any kind of sense to me is if you wanted to uh, uh, basically, um, you know, uh, flush him out uh, right, for, right. for a further uh, body count. Yeah, but he, he was not one of the trench coats. No. Yeah, and there was no indication that the, the trench coaters were down there with him. Like I said, I'm thinking the cops got a hold of this guy, and they, they used him to try to find out who was behind those doors, if the gunmen were behind it. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know how good an idea that is either. I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of unrealistic, but then again, it, there were so many uh, actions that, in that school that were unexplainable. So, Well, you know, going back to the fact, no, it's not a fact, to the possibility that this event was supposed to take place on 9-14 later in the day, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um See, what's, what's always kind of like made me scratch my head is that when you talk about over a hundred possible explosive devices, and a number of them kind of burdensome, right? Right. Uh, Bill, Zab- Bill Zabel said there were, I think, over 20, 20-pound 20 propane tanks. I only know of two that they carried in. Right. But even just two, it would be way too much for them to, to lug around. Obviously, these things had to be pre-staged, most of them. Well, and also, if you're going to bring this stuff in, I mean, one of the reasons why you get the trench coat on is to hide the weaponry. Right. Now you come walking in with these things. What do you, I mean, what is it, for a, a, a science experiment? Yeah, yeah, but, but nobody uh, saw them uh, walking to the school with big duffel bags full of bombs. Well, you see, around. right, and that's another thing that I find problematic because if it were a place that wasn't under the surveillance of cameras, uh, wasn't there anybody around, you know, school personnel or anything that, that you know, could see that? Now, I understand in any facility... On any given day, you could probably walk right by everybody, uh, or not right by everybody, but into a, a school facility, and nobody see you. I mean, that's possible. Uh, I think even where uh, uh, this elementary school that we have down here where my wife and I go skating, uh, they have everything fenced off, and yet I know that if I walk to the uh, what you would call the, uh, the plant operation mm-hmm. uh, area, that door is open. I'm in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gone in there, in fact, and not that this is like a big detail, but I'll, let's say this. I mean, m- People obviously are really, really concerned and very, very protective of elementary schools, okay? Mm-hmm. But I can go in there, and I've gone in there trying to ask them if I could use the restroom and just gone ahead and done it yeah. and walked back out again, and nobody saw me. So, I mean, it's, it's great if they want you to go where visitors are supposed to go, which is very surveilled and, um, and you know, full of fences and, and, uh, and uh, devices, you know, where you have to be recognized to come in, but you can walk right into basically the janitorial area, and that's all there is. Well, if they were going into the school beforehand and planting the bombs, they took a big risk. I mean, what if somebody had seen one of these devices? They well, would have pulled a fire alarm, the school would have been evacuated, they would have lost their chance to go in there and kill a bunch of people. Well, that's why I said, that's, that's the final point that I'd like to get to, and that is, if, they, if while these devices were there, it's not a question if they were or not, but because they were, it's a bit of a logistical task to put you know, to get these things in there. And one would think that the longer they stayed where they were, and especially across perhaps 48 hours, that's going to raise a lot of flags, and uh, and that's going to be the end of that. So would you agree that whenever they were put in, they were probably put in, shall we say, mm, the overnight before the event? Uh, my guess, uh, I want to tell you this, I think they were put in during the event. 
because because basically no one found these things beforehand. Uh, there weren't that many places there that you could hide them with any expectation that no one would find them. So I'm, I'm thinking that after the thing started, they shuttled back and forth between their cars and they spread them out in the school. Or there was some central location where they were all staged inside the school, and then they were spread out. What are the chances, then, that uh, they would have had help beyond just the two of them? Oh, that, that's, uh, of course, 100%. As right. I told you, there were others spotted on scene, at least five other perpetrators. Yeah, Bill had also mentioned, I guess, one other device that was found after the fact. After it all went down, something was found. I, I, I don't remember if you said we were in the, if we were in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, that was uh, another bomb that was found either the next day or the day after. Bill Zabel said it was found on the 21st in the cafeteria. My information was that it was found on the 22nd in the kitchen. And it was found in the kitchen, and then only a couple days later, it, they tur mm -hmm. it turned into a cafeteria, a bomb. Now, For some reason, they shifted the location from the kitchen to the, the back to the cafeteria. But, but again, you know, who would have done it, and what was the, uh, I wouldn't say the benefit, but what was the point? Why they would put one in the kitchen? Or that why one would show up a day or two after? Uh, well, they, I guess the obvious implication is that they hit it so well that they didn't find it the first time around. But the only problem with that theory is that the kitchen workers indicated that there weren't that many places in that kitchen where you could hide something like that. You know? Yeah. So what was it perhaps put up in the ceiling? Uh, you know, who knows? Of all the things that took place that are that are questionable, questionable what, how would you rank... The whole bit about the explosives being put into the school, would that be one of the ones that's kind of uh, high on your list with regard to, uh, you know, strangeness? Uh, what I found strange about the bombs is that I don't know of a single school shooting where, where bombs injured anybody in the modern era. Oftentimes these kids are spending time making these things, but they're, they're, most of them don't go off and they don't ever injure anybody. So why do mm. they spend all this time making all these bombs and only have a handful go off is always uh, confusing. Are they really plan on bombing the school, or are these things just props used to delay the police response? Yeah, and none of them obviously ever did go off. Is that correct? Well, I wouldn't say none of them. I'd say about a handful, maybe 10 to 15 went off. How many of them would have been hand-tossed pipe bombs, do you know? Uh, probably about seven or eight. And, of course, though, now, to refresh my memory, was it one or more individuals supposedly uh, uh, involved with throwing the pipe bombs? Uh, they saw, uh, yeah, they saw the, the white t-shirted bomber throw a pipe bomb, but I'm sure they, they all kind of participated in that aspect of it. Hmm. They had bombs going out from the library, in the hallways, down in the cafeteria. And so the, the numerous people must have participated in that aspect of it. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it just, it just sounds so fishy. I mean, to, to, to um, uh, impute to them the, abil the ability to do all these things uh, within a short period of time. And I think what everybody forgets about in... Uh, you know, I'm no expert for sure, but, you know, I, I, I have a friend that re retired from the FBI, and uh, he recounted a couple of stories about what happens, uh, you know, before shootouts and stuff. Uh, I mean, you know, people, uh, the, their adrenaline is, is just pumping, and in a way you're almost out of body. Uh, none of these people that we know of who were involved in any of these incidents in Columbine or elsewhere were such, you know, so hardened to combat or, uh, or shooting that you would have, you know, that, that it would have seemed that these people carry this out with such a plumb. And that, you know, it certainly can't be the case. I mean, let's, let's put our, ourselves in situations where we even had to draw a firearm, let's say, to defend ourselves or in the preparation to do such. Can you imagine? I mean, you're not in your regular 
kind of mind, if you know what I mean. Right. That was one of the curious things. These guys were seen that morning in school, in class, and they were all appearing and acting quite normal. No nervousness, no antsiness. And then and suddenly they, they disappear around third period, and they show up, uh, you know, at 11.15, and everybody's shooting. So they actually... And, and, you know, I got me vast this minute of yourself or go way back when, but it doesn't matter. We might as well use this as much as a review for anything as anything else. But they were actually sitting in class. They had gone through a class or two? Uh, yeah, they, they had, uh, I believe, gone through the first two hours worth of classes, most of them. And, and I think for the third period, they were all missing, and then they show up at 11 o'clock back at school. So where were they for that last hour? I don't know. That's a good question. And nobody said they showed any visible signs of... Uh, Irritation, excitement, uneasiness? No, not that morning. They were all in class, apparently normal from what the fellow students said. And what's interesting, you know, of course, that I've, that I've named uh, four other people being involved. Uh, well, these people, they tried to get back into the school after they had left already. After they had been arrested and interrogated, they were seen trying to re-enter the school. Are, are you saying the, the day of the event? The day of the event, right, right. Uh, these were uh, at least three of the individuals were seen as uh, gunmen, and about an hour or two later, they're back trying to get into the school because they're worried about their friends and their relatives, sisters and brothers. All right, I, I want to get back to the uh, the school situation, but now that you mentioned this, yeah, that's something that I found interesting as I'm going through the information that you gave me, and um, you wrote something with regard to a um, a uh, security guard at a Swedish medical center. Mm-hmm. All right, now, is, is this what you're referring to about the, the students wanting to get back in? No, no, this is uh, referring to uh, uh, three other, not the splatter punks. These were the, the three trench coat mafia members that were seen uh, by students shooting with guns. In other, in other words, they were actively part of the shooting party. All right, so the, these three people you're talking about right now, these three students, were trench coat mafia who have been already brought to the police. I'm assuming that they, they took off, they were, uh, yeah, they were apprehended quite quickly by the police, but then they were all seen later that day trying to get back to the school. Now, had this they were worried about their, their sisters, in one case, their friends, whatever. Do you know what time that might have been? Uh, that, that was kind of vague. They never indicated. It was afternoon, uh, but I don't know the exact time. One of the infuriating things about the interviews was that they were always vague about the time, or if they were specific about the time, they were vague about the place. So I could never quite figure out when that was, when uh, they were arrested exactly, when they were apprehended. Do you know um, on what kind of information the police even uh, brought them in? Uh, I would assume that would be the strength of the eyewitness uh, interviews. That stated what? Well, they were all talking about the trench coat mafia doing this. Multiple gunmen wearing black trench coats, and these everybody knew who these people were. Well, were there any uh, eyewitness accounts that fingered them and said, listen, these kids were doing such and such? Uh, yes, there were, but these were released later. Many, okay. many students uh, ID these people as being gunmen. All right, the reason I'm asking is... Robert Perry, as you well know. Right. Uh, Chris Morris was seen by two or three people. So, so they knew who they were. Uh, were Morris and Perry among the three TMCs? Yes, they were. Morris was the, the leader. Yeah. All right, and were, were these uh, two of the three that were taken in for questioning? I'm thinking to myself, why even, why would you even be expeditious, and I, I mean this with regard to the police, about letting them get back out? You think at least they'd sit on them until you saw what happens. 
That's what I would think, too. But the only explanation I had is that uh, as soon as they were picked up, they got a phone call saying, you know, uh, these guys are not it. Let them go. That's the only explanation I have. They must have been ordered to let these people go. All right. Now, uh, who were the arresting officers? They belong to what department? Uh, I don't know that. We don't know who arrested them. Or, but there were, all, there were so many police at the scene, it could have been anybody. Probably Jefferson County or Littleton or, or Denver PD. All right. Uh, so can we presume that the whole release of these uh, these three individuals or five, you know, all told, uh, that kind of stinks? It certainly does. If you have eyewitness uh, accounts that, uh, you know, that you've seen somebody shooting a gun and, and killing, you obviously don't just pick them up for a couple hours and let them go. All right. You know, you do medical tests, you have them stand up and line up, you gather other uh, eyewitness testimony. So it's pretty clear that somebody dropped the word down the line, you know, you will let these people go. And I think that was the federal government. My suspicion is that the crime scene was federalized, and at some point they just got a phone call saying, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll handle it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Let's look at another trio, the one that I was referring to, um, but about whom you uh, sent me some information. Right, the slaughter punks. Well, first of all, we got a, a Ken Greenwald, who's a security guard uh, at the Swedish Medical Center. What is the proximity of the medical center to anything? Uh, I believe it wasn't too far from where the school was, because that's where they parked their car, these splatter punks. They came from uh, Broomfield across town. Mm -hmm. They said they heard it on the radio. So they drove across town, didn't have any trouble approaching the school, didn't have any trouble finding a parking space. All right. I, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to read what you gave me, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, this individual, Greenwald, um, he saw the uh, three SP spider punks exit their vehicle. Uh, Columbine was already on the news at the time. And uh, I assume this is Greenwald sees them being arrested on TV. Unfortunately, in parentheses, you state he doesn't give a time. Later, he sees these three SPs re-enter the vehicle and, quote, raise their fists in the air and wave them toward the school as if they were happy about what happened, uh, end of quote. That quote comes direct, that's a rip directly from Greenwald, is it not? Uh, yes, that's true, yes, he was interviewed. All right, so, so what about this whole scenario? You, I mean... Well, it, it is clear that these guys uh, had foreknowledge. There was a, another onlooker in Clement Park who was watching the, the, the police response. And he was standing near these three splatter punks. And they told him that they, they, they had foreknowledge. Uh, they told him they knew who was doing it and why. <laughs> so so the, the story that they cooked up that they heard it on the radio and just came down to look was a bunch of hooey. They were given foreknowledge, obviously. They were part, you know, part of the same social milieu. They'd heard about it. They were told to come down and, and watch the action. Yeah, I mean, this this stuff is, it, obviously, for people who look for things to make sense, this gets a little bit frustrating. Right. I mean, it just, you know, it just, it, it doesn't make sense whatsoever. Uh, another thing, too, and, and I want to tell folks, it's um, 36 after the hour, you're listening to the Grassy Knoll. We have with us Ralph Seishmar. He has been with us before to uh, speak to Columbine. He more or less kicked this uh, whole unfortunate uh, series of interviews off, uh, um, being the first one up and we're giving them a, a final shot, at least for a while. Um, Ralph, anything more about the website that I've not mentioned? Like I said, I have a link up so that people can get there. Uh, but I've not asked you whether or not you'd like them to go to a particular area or any other features about uh, the, uh, the uh, website. Uh, you mean the Echoes of Columbine website? Yeah, and if there's more, and I think you got two more or something like that? or uh, Yeah, just go to that website and peruse the information that you find. I prefer my post. I'm, I'm probably the, the 
All right, and can you give us that URL? Uh, it just echoes a Columbine at Easy Board. Right. <laughs> I couldn't uh, give you the whole thing. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's kind of extensive, but that'll get them there, too, even if they have to do a search. It's echoes of Columbine, right? Yeah, or just under my name, Star Diego. Okay. And that's, that's Star as in Star, folks. Uh, Diego, B-I-E-G-O, one word, right? Right, right. I'm, and uh, I'm in the search engines associated with Columbine, so if you just look for that, you'll find where I'm, where I'm at. And, folks, if you want to make a comment, if you want to ask a question uh, using email, visigoth at hotmail.com. If you're going to use an IM service, if it's MSN, it's Vizigot, B-Y-Z-Y-G-O-T-H. And with Yahoo, it's Viz1400, and send them along, and we'll, we'll take them as they come. Uh, what I'm also thinking about with the accounts of students, and as I, I read yours this morning and uh, later yesterday, and I'm thinking back to Bill and the whole scenario, uh, was was there a lockdown? I mean, I know this might be a dull question, but I mean, was there a lockdown in effect? Did they try to get them out, or what happened? A lockdown after the shooting started? <sighs> yeah, yeah. A lockdown before the shooting started, or, or what? Well, I doubt there could be one before, unless that's another strange oddity. But uh, no, let's. I mean, did they ever go into lockdown mode after it was known that there was firing going on? Uh, after the firing started, they they, they initially pulled the fire alarms. They tried to get students out. But then the, the teachers realized that these gunmen were in the hallways, so they tried to push everybody back into the classrooms and then to lock the doors and barricade the doors. I'd say maybe roughly half the students ran out, half of them were left behind in the classrooms and had to wait three or four hours to get loose. So, Well, we, when we see the, uh, the film footage, and it's probably the, the thing that's most, um, most viewed by us, are the kids being led in a train, so to speak, right? Running from the school and behind some vehicles. Right. Can you place that as far as where that, when that happened during the timeline? Yeah, I would say that's approximately one thirty to two thirty p.m. Most of those kids that you see running out were probably from the kitchen or the science areas. That's about when they were brought out. At that point, uh, the police had gotten information that the the gunmen were students and that they may be trying to escape as victims. So unfortunately, everybody was treated as a suspect at that point. They all had to come out with their hands up in the air. They were all patted down and searched. So that's well, a byproduct of that. That kind of slows down the process, doesn't it? It does. If you don't know who the gunmen are, you know, <laughs> and every kid is considered a suspect. Yeah, I know, you know, but still, you know, it's easy to second guess. I understand that. But I also think that don't you run the risk or don't you err on the side of um, saving lives if you let them all get out of there? Because sooner or later you're going to come down with information, in interviews or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I just don't know how far the, the perks could get away, let's say, or how long they could stay uh, uh, away from being apprehended. And in the meantime, if you're backing everything up, and again, I don't mean to be hypercritical about the police, but it's I just rather like, you know, when they talk about dead bodies and then sort out, you know, <laughs> the ones you wanted, like let's everybody get out and then sort out out of live bodies the ones that you want to grab, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. And the police were criticized for concentrating on setting up a perimeter while the shooters were inside the school. That was one of the big causes of criticism of the police. It's all the more interesting because several of the first responders had kids inside that school. There was like 20 cops who, who participated in that operation who had children inside that school. Did that impact them any differently than anyone else uh, uh, in law enforcement? Well, it, it uh, kind of gave the lie to the idea that the police were just cowards. That was one of the criticisms that was made, but obviously if these men had children inside of that, you know, cowardice was not what kept them out. So, uh, 
there were, there were, there were just the two of them with, with where the schools laid out. Mm-hmm. Were there first reports that they were, did they ever split up? Were they together everywhere they went? And did it start in the kitchen or did it start in the library? And, and, and just how, you know, peripatetic was it throughout the school? Well, officially speaking, they were together most of the time. It started on the, the western side of the school. They allegedly started shooting, and then they uh, went to the cafeteria, up the stairway, and into the library. That was the first story that they put out, and then later that was changed that they started on the western side. They went through the west entrance doors and then into the library. But officially, yes, they did stay together most of the time that they were in that school. See, with regard to the lockdown situation, and I've wondered about this, um, and, and personally, my feeling has always been, and I, it it probably predates Columbine, honestly, when I started seeing fences going up around uh, schools here, and there might be another reason why that uh, will happen. And, and just as a, sh- a, a quick digression, there may be uh, uh, FEMA uh, pre- prerequisites, if you will, for making certain schools areas of shelters during uh the hurricanes and such, and we can all understand that. Mm-hmm. But to, to be to do that, you have to be retrofitted with certain things, and one of them is a fully enclosed uh, facility behind China, chain link or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I used to see that go up, and I was still saying to myself, "Well, you know, how, how much does this really mean? If you got if you have gates and fences, what difference does it make? You know what I mean? You don't have the whole thing sealed off all the time." Right, right. Now, now having said that, I always thought that if I had children, I'd rather have them beat it out of school and take their chances on the run rather than be gathered together, which seems to me like if things go wrong, I mean, that's like fish in a barrel. I mean, I just, you know, the implications of that are massive. Exactly. Now, now with this situation with Columbine, do, do we have like half of an evacuation and then all of a sudden because of perhaps where the shooters were, as you said, uh, the teacher turn around and say, okay, that's it, we're locking down and, um, you know, get under the desk or go into a coat room or whatever. Yeah, that happened in the first five minutes. It, it turned from an evacuation drill to everybody get back inside and lock the doors. But that was just in the first five minutes. Did, was there any kind of accurate, I don't see how there could be, by the way, but was there any kind of accurate information about the, the travels of the two? Or did it ever get to a point where they were, were supposedly located in so many places, you're wondering, like, how could these two guys get around? What was the deal on that? Uh, well, the, the students who came out and who talked to officers right away uh, told them where they were. And they were basically in the same areas. They were in the library, in the science hall, in the cafeteria, and in the front office. That was kind of confusing, I guess, because it certainly indicates that they could not have been everywhere at once. And it was just more information that there was multiple teams in there, not just Harris and Klebold, but probably at least two teams traveling around shooting at the school. So then it, it, it does make sense that if um, that, that, that teachers and the students were hearing uh, gunfire go off to the point where uh, even though they weren't supposed to be there, Cleveland and Harris, obviously something was going on, and that was, uh, you know, the motivation to let, to keep them hunkered down. Uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when you hear these accounts, when you read these accounts, rather, mm-hmm. uh, from students and such, sometimes, and I, I must say, I did at first think about it as if these students were alone, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, would you say that in these rooms? There were, like, say, upwards of 10 to 15 students. And, and most of them there were, that's true. And some of these smaller storage rooms that they hid in, they were packed in like fish in a barrel. All right, and, and now I'm assuming that because you only hear about one student, per se, in a particular room, uh, that would be um, the result of not everybody wanting to give a bit, an eyewitness account. 
Pomona. Pomona? Thank you. That was another high school in the same school district as Columbine. Uh, that gets back to the splatter punks. They were uh, allegedly involved in a, another assault, according to numerous reports that came in that they were planning on attacking Pomona. I should point out that uh, three days before Columbine, two students were arrested in that school at night with explosives. Where? At Pomona High School. At Pomona? Okay. At Pomona High School. Three, three days before Columbine, two individuals were arrested inside that school with explosives. Another one was arrested, I think, right outside. He said he was on maneuvers when he was arrested. And they didn't give their names, but I'm thinking these were the same guys, these same splatter punks. Because they, they, they uh, well, they uh, were accused, I guess, whether students of attacking Pomona or wanting to. All right, well, now, there's a couple things here. Let's take the one that sounds the, the, uh, the weirdest, and that is, all right, the kids got, got camos on, mm-hmm. which is not a strange thing for civilians to wear because it's become kind of like a, you know, a chic fashion. Right, but so, it does kind of say something about their militaristic mindset that but with, the, the trench coaters also wore uh, camouflage at times. But with, now, if these, you you're saying you're assuming that these individuals are, are splatter punks. Mm-hmm. Uh, was part of their mufti wearing camouflage? Camos? That's what they always wore, mostly camo, black, variations of the same. All right, uh, and they were arrested in the school, and that would be what, April 17th? I believe it was April 17th, right, in the, at nighttime, around midnight, I believe it was. So that would make it Saturday, correct? I think Saturday, right, and they did have explosives on them, so. <laughs> you know, and then they show up a couple, three days later at Columbine, and it, uh, there's no connection there. So I can't be, uh, say for certain that these were the, the same splatter punks. It just sounds like them. But but nevertheless, whoever was in there, yeah. first of all, is trespassing. Second of all, um, is connected or are connected with uh, explosive, correct? Right, right. And it sounds like another attack on, on another school there, indicating perhaps that what happened at Columbine was just supposed to be the beginning, that that was supposed to have been done in conjunction with other school attacks in various places. But wouldn't this indicate that Pomona probably would have been, uh, I mean, because I'm looking at a couple of things, I'm just thinking, one, uh, did these characters want to do a copycat, if you will, before the actual event? You know what I'm saying? I don't think we you call it a copycat. I think it was a coordinated attack. That's what was supposed to happen. But they just got intercepted by the police. All right. So in other words, there might have been a two or even three uh, school event within the, to- the totality of what was being done. Right. Or it could have been a seven or eight school event. There was a whole bunch of people being busted uh, before and after the fact after Columbine, and there was indications that some of these things had uh, connections to Columbine. And since I said it could have been three, was there any information uh, to suggest there might have been another school or schools involved beyond Pomona and Columbine? Right. Uh, the day before, uh, two transcriptors had been arrested in Evans High School in Georgia, in Appling, Georgia, across the country, Yeah. which is near Augusta. Yeah. They, they were also into the black trench coat look. They, they did the combat role-playing scenarios, they were into the occult, and they had been arrested the day before. And the researchers first indicated that they had some kind of connection to the Columbine Strangecoat Mafia via the Internet. Well, that was going to be my next question. Did, did anybody ever make public? Because I know, if it's, you know, with what we're dealing with here now, certain information is going to be suppressed or has been suppressed. Certain stuff gets out. So uh, is there information, again, or rumors or anything alleged that there was 
like say an email or a blog uh, 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 correspondence between these individuals uh, in Georgia and also uh, with the Columbine perps? Yeah, well, there's no direct police evidence that has been released. However, the, the first interviews that were given to the school administrators, they said that there was a connection. They were either in Internet contact with the Colorado's Trench Coat Mafia or they were visiting the same uh, website, same Trench Coat Mafia website. And, of course, they dressed the same. They, they thought the same. It sounds like they were planning on doing an attack on the 20th. So we either this is all, once again, just coincidence or it was a coordinated attack. Now, you've had some incidents out in California, mm -hmm. uh, but um, has your research, because, I mean, um, memory fails me, but has there been any kind of research that things have, in a sense, quieted down or have been on the increase? I mean, we did have supposedly lone gun gunman situations in Oregon and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, what about the activity, or lack thereof, along these lines uh, since 1999? Uh I, I, it looks as though the school shooting phenomenon is actually increasing. We've had a, about eight or nine incidences, like in September and October. The latest one was over in Germany, MZET School. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, another lone gunman, apparently, but he was also a big fan of Harrison Klebold. He wore the black trench coat once again. Uh -huh. There's some indications that he was planning it with others, although he was fingered as the lone gunman. So it just keeps going and going. You know, uh, did you get a, uh, an email from Sandra? Because this is just on my memory again. Uh, when she had uh, uh, spoken to a certain extent about an incident that took place in Germany, I think uh, I think there was even a, a wire service story that she forwarded with it. Do you remember that? Uh, incident in Germany. Are you talking about the Erfurt shooting? Uh, she's going to kill me for not knowing. Uh, yeah. it, it sounded like this one was earlier. Would that have been that particular one? It's probably Erfurt, Germany shooting. There's another school shooting. That was back in 2002, I believe. All right, because there's, there's a little bit of a strange signature with that as well. Yeah. But the one you're referring to is, uh, is, is more recent. Yes, this happened, I think, just about three weeks ago in a small town in western Germany. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, we're running out of time, and I don't know if you have any final comments, but if, if, if you do, just let me throw this one in here, too. Um, have you, to your satisfaction... Um, given that you're researching this kind of event, um, are you satisfied with what's come out of uh, southeast Pennsylvania with the shooting at Nickel Mines? The Amish school shooting? Yeah. Uh, that story disappeared very, very quickly. The weirdest thing about that was the total lack of motive on the part of the alleged perpetrator. Here we have a stable, church-going family man suddenly one day goes in and, for reasons unknown, guns down all these innocent school children. That, that's, you know, that uh -huh. illustrates perfectly the whole problem with the entire school shooting phenomenon is that none of these guys ever has any motive. None of them. Or that you really don't get any in-depth anatomy of the whole event. No, no, no. It, it dominates headlines for a day or two, and then the whole thing is forgotten about. Lone gunman, nutcase, case closed. Yeah, and another thing that troubles me about this, and I've not really, I think, uh, spoken to or, or corresponded with Sandra, about this, but it's the time that it took for the event to be, and I hate to use the word, but it's accurate, unfortunately, executed, both in Dunblane, for instance, and in uh, Nickel Mines, when you have an individual, again, not given to be a big marksman or whatever, or battle-hardened, taking the time that happened in Dunblane, and also in Nickel Mines, where this guy boarded up a couple of doors. Right, right, right. He was, uh, 
I, I didn't know what, what he was planning or, or what he was thinking. There were some allegations that he was uh, wanted to do a, a mass sexual assault on all these girls gathered in the school. Uh, however, that didn't happen. There was no indications that these young girls were sexually assaulted in that case. And, and okay, I'm sorry, Ralph. Yeah, well, why, why that came up in the, in, uh, the Bailey, Colorado incident, that was also a sexual assault, and then the Amish school shooting, why they brought this sexual component into the school shooting phenomenon, I don't really know. Perhaps it's just an added element to shock the public with. Well, it's possible that at this point the public is so jaded that unless they hear about you know young girls being sexually assaulted, it, it just it doesn't register anymore. I, I hate to say it, but you mean it's almost like just another murder? Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so what the uh, conspirators have to do is bring in new and improved school shootings, add a more shocking element to, to ramp up the fear again. Right. Get it back in the news. And you know we've never spoken about this as well, but again I have to think back to. Uh, whether this any way, shape, or form was kind of like an MKUltra situation. You have somebody, I guess, reportedly on some kind of uh, psychotropics or whatever, uh, and whether you know that played a role in this or if it played a role that we're not supposed to know about, which obviously is being manipulated. Mm -hmm. Well, it is true. Most of these school shooters are on some kind of psychotropic drugs. But that just, once again, is mentioned in passing. They never really explored the ramifications of what that might mean. No, and it's more so than just keeping somebody... Uh, basically able to function in society. It may have another uh, more insidious effect, which we know goes along with MKUltra and uh, psychological manipulation. Right. It's known that a lot of these drugs, they, uh, they mess with the, the sleep cycle. Uh, supposedly, some of the people taking these drugs can no longer tell if they're in a dream right. or if they're in a waking state. Right. It might be possible in such a situation to, to mind control somebody much easier than it would normally. Right. So who knows? All right, Ralph. Uh, any parting comments of that? If not, um We've come to the end of this show. I just want to say that these school shootings are covert operations run by uh, probably intelligent agencies from inside the government. That's all I can say. That's my final conclusion, having studied this phenomenon for so long. Well, if, if you and, uh, and Bill do both uh, lend your uh, resources to uh, exploring the, the situation, especially in Columbine, uh, I think that's only going to become more and more evident. Yeah, and I think in time it will. All right, Rob, listen, have a good holiday season. Thanks for spending the time with us again. We're glad you came back. Okay, Keith, thanks for the, uh, the opportunity to express my thanks. Thanks, Rob. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.